If you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd invite you to turn with me to Luke, the 12th chapter. Luke chapter 12, this morning, we will begin reading at the 13th verse. Someone from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus said to him, man, who appointed me as judge or referee between you and your brother? Then Jesus said to him, watch out, guard yourself against all kinds of greed. After all, one's life isn't determined by one's possessions, even when someone is very wealthy. Then he told them a parable. A certain rich man's land produced a bountiful crop. He said to himself, what will I do? I, I have no place to store my harvest. Then he thought, oh, here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. That's where I'll store all my grain and goods. I'll say to myself, you have stored up plenty of goods enough for several years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, fool, tonight you will die. Now who will get the things you have prepared for yourself? This is the way it will be for those who hoard things for themselves and aren't rich toward God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. There is more to life than food, and more to the body than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither plant nor harvest. They have no silo or barn, yet God feeds them. You are worth so much more than birds. Who among you by worrying can add a single moment to your life? If you can't do such a small thing, why worry about the rest? Notice how the lilies grow. They don't wear themselves out with work and they don't spin cloth. But I say to you that even Solomon in all his splendor wasn't dressed like one of these. If God dresses grass in the field so beautifully, even though it's alive today and tomorrow it's thrown into the furnace, how much more will God do for you, you people of weak faith? Don't chase after what you will eat and what you will drink. Stop worrying. All the nations of the world long for these things. Your Father knows that you need them. Instead, desire his kingdom. And these things will be given to you as well. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Some of you know, about a year and a half ago, um, I started a, a podcast project um, for two reasons. One, it was in the midst of COVID and I was kind of bored. And secondly, um, I, as, as most of you know, I have this sense of kind of tension in my life between sp having spent years of ministry in university and seminary in the academy, but then in ministry in the local church. And I, and I hate at times that those two get in tension with each other. And so sometimes the academy does it, its work without thinking much about the local church. And sometimes the local church gets suspicious of what's going on in the academy. And I just, I thought, I'm going to I'm gonna, I want to hold those two together. And so I'm going to call up some friends who owe me one and uh, talk to them about the books that they're writing and that kind of stuff. And I just thought it'd be a fun little project. Well, it's, it's turned into a little more than I expected. But this week, I, I posted a podcast that I didn't think would ever happen. And I feel like I should just quit now um, and just kind of go out on a high note. But um, I mentioned uh, the name Walter Brueggemann quite a bit. He's an Old Testament scholar. Um, I think it's hard to argue that he's He's 
probably the foremost, uh, certainly the one who's written the most, uh, of, of kind of living Old Testament scholars and is in his 80s. I have met him, but in those occasions that he should not remember and doesn't um, <laughs> a couple of times over the years. Uh, but one of my dear friends, uh, Dr. Brent Strun, who teaches at Duke Divinity School, um, got to know him a number of years ago and Walter's become a kind of mentor in his life. And so they actually just released a project on Jeremiah that Brent is editing the series, but Walter wrote the book. And so when I saw it, I, I emailed my friend Brent and said, hey, any chance you can get the Holy One to be on a podcast with us, right? Like, can we get the three of us in a round table together? And I really thought it was a long shot. Actually, Brent thought it was a long shot too. Um, but Walter agreed to do it. And it was just delightful. And, and it was so much fun to get to have this conversation and to get to share parts of that. Um, but people have uh, listened to it, and several people have kind of picked out some of the statements that Walter made in the midst of this podcast. And, and one of my favorites was this. I asked him, so Dr. Brueggemann, as you think about handing the baton of biblical scholarship onto the next generation, are there things that you hope the next generation, especially of Old Testament scholars, are, are there things that you hope they will carry forward in their work? And he said this, this is a quote. We need younger scholars who understand that the Bible is essentially about economics. And that begins with God being the provider. Let me say that again. We need younger scholars who understand that the Bible is essentially about economics. And that begins with God being the provider. Now I know he was being uh, a bit hyperbolic there. Certainly there's a lot more in the scripture beyond economics, but I also know that he has this very deep intuitive sense, and we'll come back to this, that we have a tendency to overlook how much of the scripture has to do with how we deal with the very real stuff of our lives, the material realities of our existence. I teased him that there is a, a kind of paradigm that I did borrow from him. He wrote an essay decades ago that I use all the time. In fact, I joked with him that one of you quoted it back to me in a meeting not long ago. But he wrote this wonderful essay called um, The Myth of Scarcity Versus the Liturgy of Abundance. The Myth of Scarcity Versus the Liturgy of Abundance. The framework there is he says... What we oftentimes get shaped by, especially in the nations and in the culture around us, we get shaped by a myth of scarcity. There's not enough stuff. There's not enough goodness. There's not enough resource of any kind in the world. And therefore, if we have it, we need to guard it very carefully. In fact, we probably should protect it with all of our might. And then part of the problem with the myth of scarcity is the more we protect that, then the more we get fearful of others, that others may come and take it. And so, so much of our life and actually so much of our resource is spent guarding the resources that we're hoarding. Are you with me? But he argues that what God so often tries to do with God's people is to teach them something other than the myth of scarcity, to teach them the liturgy of abundance. I want to think about that in relationship to the parable this morning. But as we do that, as I study this parable and, and the, the sayings that Jesus has after it about not being anxious and not worrying, but trusting God, I couldn't help but think in this parable and in Jesus' teaching, there are two Old Testament characters, one that's subtly referenced and one that's not subtly referenced. But both of those characters, Walter has really messed up for me. 
I grew up in children's church thinking of these two characters as good. He has messed up my view of them. And I want to talk about those two characters in relationship to this text. The first is Joseph. Now, I, I was teaching a, a preaching class for a seminary a number of years ago, and I, I have these three volumes of Brueggemann's sermons, and so I, I picked my four or five favorites, I made copies of them, and I had the students read them and, and kind of reflect on what was good about them. And what was funny to me was, of the five sermons I gave them, they loved four of them, and to a person, they absolutely hated one of them. In fact, the students just wrote these scathing things. They just hated the sermon. What was funny is the one they hated was my favorite. Um, but it's a sermon that he preached on Joseph called, I think the title of it was something like this, The Fourth Generation Sellout. And his question was, and it was on a text from Exodus, obviously, um, and Genesis. But he, uh, he asked this question, why is it that when Israel tells its lineage... They call themselves the children of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Joseph seems to have been dropped off. So if you know Genesis, which you will, we'll talk about that more. Genesis 12 through 50 tells the story of four generations. And the patriarchs of those generations are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. But when Israel rehearses its memory, they leave Joseph off. And so Brueggemann wonders, maybe that's because... There's a little ambiguity about, was Joseph good or not? Now, as I said, growing up in children's church, I knew Joseph was good. And my students were convinced Joseph was good. Because Joseph, I mean, sure, he has a dream and he probably should have kept it to himself, right? Like, if your family's going to worship you, just let it happen. Don't tell them ahead of time, right? <laughs> there is such a thing as an unexpressed thought. Um, but Joseph blabs about it, his brother sell him into slavery, and, you know, the story kind of ups and downs, but then he's able to interpret dreams, and he interprets Pharaoh's dream. Pharaoh has this dream about seven big cow cows, Diane, right? Seven big cows and seven skinny cows. Seven big sheaves of green, grain, seven skinny dried up sheaves of grain. And he's able to say, oh, I know what that dream means, Pharaoh. We're going to have seven years of plenty, but then we're going to have seven years of famine. Now what Pharaoh does is then Pharaoh, during those years of plenty, builds big, giant storehouses and stores up as much as he can during those seven years of plenty, and then is able to save or redeem all of these people who then begin to get hungry and starve during the seven years of famine, right? And the whole cool part about Genesis to us is Pharaoh's not so smart. It's a Jewish guy named Joseph who came up with the whole scheme. Pharaoh got rich because of Joseph. And we get to the end of Genesis and the brothers get hungry. They come up and they have to get food. And Joseph says, oh, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good so all these people could be saved. And they lived happily ever after. But Brueggemann asked this question. Sure. But let's not forget. During the first three and a half years of famine, Pharaoh charged for all that grain. And everybody had to come and they were out of money after three and a half years. And then for the next three and a half years, they're out of money. So what do they have? They got property. So Pharaoh says, well, great. I'll give you food. Give me your property. But then they're out of property. What do they have left? They just have themselves. So Pharaoh says, great. I'll give you food. Give me you. So that by the end of the seven years, 
They've eaten, but they now have lost all their money, all their land, and they're now enslaved to Pharaoh. And so Brueggemann wonders, perhaps in Israel's imagination, they realize, well, it wasn't, the years of plenty weren't bad. It wasn't as though this great harvest and storing that up for a rainy day was a bad idea. It's that that fueled a kind of selfishness, a kind of economy that then became exploitive. And it fueled a kind of desire in Pharaoh that began to gobble everything up so that then by the time we get to Exodus, there came along a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And now what we have is injustice and bondage and slavery. And people crying out for something to be different. Are you with me? And so Brueggemann wonders, maybe they like Joseph, but maybe they prefer to think of themselves as the God, as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The parable this morning opens with that idea. First of all, a guy comes to Jesus and says, hey, my brother won't give me my share of the inheritance. Will you settle this for me? And I know that's hard for us to imagine because in the 21st century, families never get divided over inheritance issues. That's solely a first century issue. And by the way, they never ask their pastor to somehow get involved. That's totally just a first century problem. But come, help me settle this dispute. Jesus responds by saying, be careful about how greed functions. And then he tells a story that sounds an awful lot like Pharaoh and Joseph. A guy has a huge abundant harvest and he asks himself, what should I do with this? And then I think it's important. The fact that he had a, an abundant harvest is not evil in the story. He's been blessed. A good year or two happened an abundance of harvest happens. The problem is when he asks, what should I do with this? And then he begins to think, maybe I should hoard all of this up, right? Maybe I should gather it together. Maybe I should just keep it and keep more and more and say to myself, which is also a problem in the text. He never invites anybody else in the conversation. He just says, self, what do you think? And self says, I think you should have more. And I want to give the guy in the parable a break. My guess is that at some point he was thinking to himself, at some point I'll have enough to care, cover what I really want and I'll be able to shift into generosity. I'll be able to shift into caring for other people. We'll have enough that then out of the abundance I can begin to care for my neighbor. But the Lord says, here's the problem. Before he could even get to that tipping point of moving from selfishness and greed to generosity, he dies. And he didn't get it and neither did anybody else. And to quote an old story from Tony Campolo, he died with all kinds of titles, but with absolutely no testimonies of how God used the abundance that God had given him to transform the lives of others. This isn't my language, this is Jesus's. What a fool. What an idiot. To have fallen for the myth of scarcity and to have given away his life in that kind of way. The second character, the Brueggemann is really messed up for me. And again, in children's church, if you went to children's church with me, you think this person's good and he's okay. It's Solomon. If you're in children's church, you remember Solomon does such a cool thing. So when his father David dies, Solomon becomes king and he's kind of young. It's a pretty big 
thing that he's been asked to take on, huge responsibility. And so God comes to him and says, man, Solly, I loved your dad. Me and David, tight, right? Like, I love them. I feel so obligated to him, I would love to do something for you. So if you'll ask me for one request, I'll give you, and this is the, right, the kind of genie in the bottle moment, right? God says, I'll give you one, not three wishes, just one, but I'll give you one, and I'll give it to you, whatever you ask for, right? I'll give it to you. And we're set up in the text to think, oh, if that was offered to me, like Solomon, would I pick like wealth or military mind power, a long life, like what would you pick? And Solomon picks, I want to have a wise and discerning heart to lead your people. Oh, awesome. That is so good, right? And even God responds with that, oh, Solomon, I love you, man. Like, that's just so great. Like, that's so amazing that you would ask for that. And, and since you asked for that, that's such a good thing. Show him what he's won, right? The whole showcase, right? Like, you're not just going to get wisdom. You're going to be so wise. You're going to know how to divide babies in two, right? Like, it's a weird story, by the way. Um, you're going to know all that stuff. But you're not just going to know that. Like, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you wealth. I'm going to give you power. I'm going to give you a long life. I'm going to give you all of that stuff. And so in children's church, we think of Solomon is so good, and, and he probably wrote some, you know, kind of nice proverby things. But then we get to 1 Kings 9 and 10. And we find out that Solomon isn't, isn't all, all of that. But we find that in Solomon's day, this wisdom and wealth, he has turned into two or three things. He's turned into a time period in Israel that's pretty spectacular. In fact, the text says, in those days there was a ton of meat, which is a text we kind of overlook really quickly, but that's important. This was before we knew about cholesterol and all that kind of stuff. There was wealth, there was meat. People, people could come and receive. There was an abundance of meat. There was an abundance of gold. In fact, the text says Solomon had so much gold that silver became like rocks. And because of the reach of his authority, Man, building was great in the valley in those days. Like there's cedar coming from Lebanon. Like there's all of this stuff coming from all over the place. Built, you builders in the room, this was a good day to be around. Solomon's house is going up. The temple's going up. Building prices are skyrocketing. Realtors are making money. Like this is awesome time period, right? Zillow's going crazy. But then as we think about those three things, we begin to discover this. The reason there's so much meat is because Solomon has created an incredibly detailed and complicated and expensive tax structure. So much so that by the time Solomon is done, the people rebel against it and the nation divides in two. Yeah, there's a lot of gold, but then the text tells us, it's my favorite part of this story, every year Solomon weighs his gold, and it always weighs the same. It weighs 666 talents of gold. Ooh. Pastor just said 666. Yes, I did. It's in 1 Kings. Solomon has broken scales that never come to completion. Every year, Solomon has so much gold, silvers become like rocks. So Solomon never says, that's enough. He says, go get more. And the reason we find out there's so much building going on is because Solomon is exploiting foreign people and he's actually capturing them. And the text several times says, and now 
Solomon has conscripted them, which means he's turned them into forced labor. Or another way to say that, say that is Solomon now has slaves. Not only building his house, but he has them building God's house too. And just for... <laughs> Just so we're sure that we know that Solomon has moved into the myth of scarcity, Solomon goes to Egypt, bing bong, to buy chariots and horses to become a Middle Eastern arms dealer, by the way, sell them cheaply. But he buys all these chariots and horses so he can have chariot cities to protect all the stuff that the kingdom now has. In other words, Solomon has become the new pharaoh. Now in between... Joseph and Solomon is this period where the people of God enter into the wilderness. We talk about it a lot. You may not have been paying attention. Occasionally I mention Exodus. But it's this period where God not only gets Israel out of Egypt, but he works to get Egypt out of them. And it's, it's not an easy time period. The wilderness is hard. But God gives them manna each day. And you may know the story. He doesn't allow them, even though they're in the wilderness, and we're not sure where our next meal comes from, they are not allowed to build storehouses to keep the, what is it? The manna. He lets them have jars so that when it comes to the Sabbath, they can keep enough for the Sabbath and make sure that they're able to share with everybody to make sure everybody has it. But God is teaching them what we pray for each week. That they can trust that God will give them each day their daily bread. If I had more time this morning, I would talk about so much of what they learn in the wilderness. Just briefly, I think it's so powerful that they learn a kind of life of tithing. That says, we have needs in this community. And so we're going to give 10% of what we raise and what we have. And that will mean that everybody participates in equal sacrifice, but not equal gifts. And out of that, we will make sure, you know, one of the problems with this text about not worrying about what we eat or what we will wear is that there are many people in our world who have to worry exactly about that, what they will eat or what they will wear. But in the overabundance of a people who tithe, that will spill over into those who have very little to give and to participate. And sort of in the abundance of the church potluck dinner, if you will, their life gets taken care of in the flourishing of the tithes. Um... A guy named Ron Sider just passed away recently. I read a book of his when I was in college called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. I just remember taking this from that book. I don't know the study Sider used, but he said, studies show that of Christians globally who talk about tithing, that we actually only give about 3% collectively of what we earn. Some probably give above tithing, but many do not tithe at all, or we give just a partial tithe. But the church is able to function on that 3%. But Sider argued if the church actually did participate and gave a full tithe, the church would not only have more than enough resources to continue to keep the ministries and mission of the church alive, we'd have enough resources to feed the globe and educate everybody. And so it's out of that sort of discipline of giving out of abundance. I, I love the law of gleaning. We've talked about it before, how you can't harvest the edges of your field. I love, 
I love what this does to their imaginations. They are a people, and I know I'm going to get in trouble for this. My email is bpeterson at nampaccn.com. But in the imagination of the wilderness, these are a people who, who are not taught to build walls against people who they are fearful will come and take their stuff. They are invited to leave a row of grain so that aliens and sojourners and refugees are not excluded, but are able to come and receive what they need to continue to live and receive from the abundance of God. They're taught Sabbath and sabbatical. They're, they work, but they're not a people defined by work. They're people who understand that we live within a whole system that needs rest and care, and we can't just simply exploit it, not just to, their, to its detriment, but ultimately to our own. Are you with me? And it's all of that kind of language of the liturgy of abundance that Jesus then says, hey, why do you worry about these things? God has placed into the rhythms of the world so that crows, as loud as they are, can eat. And this is where he mentions Solomon. Why are you worried about what you wear? That's Solomon's stuff. But I tell you, even as rich and plentiful and powerful as Solomon was, he wasn't even close to how beautiful lilies of the field are. Are you with me? And so learn this, this liturgy of abundance. Uh, Brueggemann in one of his sermons says it this way. The news is that there is an alternative to the anxiety system. At the center of the alternative is the creator God, here called Father. The creator God sustains a system of abundance. Since the first imperative, be fruitful, the good creation has been generating and enhancing life. It has for centuries supplied fresh water. It has for many generations offered times and seasons for planting and harvesting, for work and rest. Jesus allows that all of God's creatures, robins and sparrows and lilies and petunias and woolly worms and whales, all know this about the goodness of the Creator. They all know the seasons and the food supply. They know when to hibernate and when to migrate, when to store up and when to reproduce. All creatures know this. They gladly live with what they have. They have no drive for more. They do not overeat or oversurplus or overgreed. They have faith in God's enough. We are the only ones who do not reverence the limits and gifts of creation because we, like Solomon, are anxious carnivores. Send your emails to W. Brueggemann. Uh, anyway, that's powerful, isn't it? I got to land this plane, but I, I'm increasingly convinced that our problem is almost identical to the first, to the first Christian church's problem. The earliest Christians' problem was not their central problem was not persecution. That was a problem. The, the primary problem in the first two, three centuries of the Christian movement was what's called Gnosticism. Gnosticism is this idea that says the Greek word gnosis means knowledge. And so that the gospel became, what do you know? Right? Like, do you have this knowledge? And it became so extreme in separating our mind or our soul from our bodies that some Gnostics even began to speculate, maybe Jesus wasn't even a body. Maybe he was just a really good ghost. Because what kind of God would go through death and birth and all the yucky stuff of humanness? 
But as that took hold, more and more early Christians were tempted to believe that what really mattered was what they had in their head, but what they did with their bodies didn't matter. Sometime we'll talk about this in more detail, but what's happened then to us in the 21st century, especially us Protestant types, is then we take the life of Jesus and we basically ignore most of it or say, well, that was really nice. But we really focus on the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then we take Paul to say what then really matters is that we have faith and we receive salvation by grace and trust in that cross, which, by the way, is, is right. But in our American forms of that, we then say then what matters is that you've been able to affirm that in your head. And we can have fights over how to specifically say exactly what we're supposed to say. But you know the problem with that? Read Paul. Paul believes in justification by our faith, but then he wants to keep telling us what we can eat and what we can't. And then, oh, he's so arrogant. He wants to tell us what we can do with our bodies. Paul, who is about justification by faith, also wants to tell us who we can sleep with. Jesus, he is such a problem. Because he keeps wanting to tell us what we have to do with our money and not do with our money. It's as though somehow they think what the gospel is about is not just what's in our head, but as Pergamon said, it's about economics. It's about our bodies. It's about what we do. And that's not a works righteousness. That's a living into the fullness of what the kingdom of God is about and seeking it first. So that what we do with our resources, our lives, our bodies matter. Now, quickly, this is not a sermon to the rich folk in the room, which in global terms is all of us, but, but a lot of us will feel like, oh, I know who this is for, and it's not me. I'm not quite, yet, I'm not quite there yet. My storehouse isn't full yet. Fool, you may die tonight. Um, <laughs> I will quickly say this. I am absolutely convinced if you don't learn to be generous when you don't have anything, you won't be generous when you have everything. Generosity is not something we learn someday when we have enough for it not to really hurt. But I do think for many of us, it is not money that causes us to be anxious. When we were raising our kids, my wife would often say, we got to find what, out what their cash is. And what she meant by that is we got to find out what actually motivates Sophie or what motivates Noah. The truth is for me, I kind of get off the hook on these texts because I do care about money, but that's not actually my biggest cash. If you know me well, my biggest cash is significance. And because of that, I don't think that's completely unhealthy. It causes me to get out of bed and work in the morning. But when it gets captured by the myth of scarcity, I begin to think there's not enough significance. And I feel the clock ticking in my life. And so I have to work harder and burn myself out trying to achieve that significance. I have no ability to say no to things. And sometimes when other people are perceived as significance, I feel a jealousy creep into my own life. And wonder why they're not paying attention to me. Are you with me? For some of you, your cash is time. You've learned the opposite of me. You've learned how to guard your time. And now, frankly, you're kind of selfish with it. For some of you, it's security. It is killing you that things might change. And you will do everything you can to make sure that it doesn't change. We could go down the line 
about what is it today that's causing you anxiety. In our culture, so often it's beauty. And the problem with that is we all get old. Uh, Maybe it's your health. Whatever it is that has become the myth of scarcity for you, God comes to us in Christ today and says, why do you do that? It's not that those things aren't things you need. God knows you and knows that you need them. But they aren't the sum of your life. And so learn the liturgy of abundance. Learn to trust God. Learn to live in the rhythms of his goodness. In closing, I I was listening to a podcast this week that was (laughs) kind of a funny podcast. It was talking about some science experiment that I thought was really funny. And I thought that had to be made up. So I looked it up and it was real. Apparently, some scientists thought it was a good idea to study what happens to people when they're on a first date with somebody. It's kind of an odd experiment, but they hooked up electrodes all over their bodies. (laughs) And what they found was this. If the date's not going well, the two people on the date, their heart rhythms never get in line. They, They constantly beat in competition with each other. Like, there's no alignment. But they found this. If you're on a date and you're kind of attracted to the other person and things are going well, a weird thing happens. You start sweating, first of all. But secondly, get all flushed. Um, But the strangest thing happens. They found the more people kind of find that they like each other, the more their hearts begin to sync up. And by the end of the date, their hearts are beating in rhythm together. That is so weird. Why do you need to know that? Go cure cancer. That was my first thought. But that's... (laughs) But... (laughs) Whatever. I'm sure it got funded by some grant somewhere. But um, but I couldn't help smiling and thinking about this text. For God wants our hearts to no longer beat to the rhythm of the myth of scarcity. But to beat to the rhythms of the God of love. And to not live in anxiety. But to live in gratitude and generosity with lives that beat with the heart of God. God, help us today. Um, How, when you look at us today, how sad you must be. I I don't think it makes you angry as much as it just breaks your heart to see us anxious and worried, often for things that are not very important, or really for maybe things that are important, but we've made them more important than they ought to be. And so help us um, in a very broken world, as you, as you said, the, the nations go after those things. The truth is this morning, we're probably all quite ambiguous characters, much like Joseph and Solomon. A fair amount of good, but a fair amount of ouch. Teach us the liturgy of abundance today. Teach us to seek first your kingdom. May your church be an unanxious presence in a very anxious world. May our heart beat with you. And may our heart be centered in your love. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Blessed assurance, Jesus is ours. Amen. Stand with me. Let's sing it together. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Glory divine, heir of 
Your voices. It is so sweet to trust in Jesus. 
just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know the saint of Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him, how I prove Him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust Him As you go this morning, uh, just a reminder, this next week, we're going to start a kind of year-long project. Uh, Saturday is October the 1st. I think we have a few bookmarks out at the guest table this morning if you didn't get one. Um, but I, I started a new podcast called The Story That Changes Everything That Will Guide You if you want to join us uh, day by day beginning Saturday. Um, if you know what podcasts are and how to get them, Wait till about Tuesday or Wednesday. It takes a couple of days for the search engines, Apple and Spotify and all those to find you, but um, you should be able to search it and subscribe by Tuesday or Wednesday. But it's on our Facebook page and tomorrow it'll be on our website as well. Uh, but would love for you to journey with us and guides to how to join us will be there. And even if you can't do that, Every Sunday, we'll be kind of walking through uh, where the text is taking us. I just am excited. It, in so many ways, this is a selfish journey. Um, I, I just am excited to hear the whole breadth of Scripture and to walk together through that as a community. But if you've listened well this morning and, and to all these parables, God loves you so deeply. And it's not that He wants your stuff. And by the way, I preached on money today, and it's not because we want your money. Because God does not want you to live in the anxiety of the myth of scarcity, but wants your life to be filled with the liturgy of abundance that becomes a blessing, not just to you, but to others. And I'm sorry that God just keeps messing with us, but he refuses to let this be a head religion, or even just the heart faith, as something that captures our whole being. Nazarenes call that the sanctified life. That's why this benediction's for us. May the God of peace himself may he sanctify us through and through. May our whole spirit, our souls, our bodies, our checkbooks be kept sound and blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who called us, he is faithful, and he will not stop until he finishes his work in us. And God's people said, amen. amen. Go in his peace.